I started typing this thing and it got real big real quick. I was at 1,200 words and when I looked again, I was at 2,100, 2,100 words. And when I just wrapped it up about three minutes ago, it was over 2,700 words. And so let me get into it. What is it? I'm talking about a rebellious teenager. You are the parent of a rebellious teen and you want to motivate this child to change. Well, I have 10 things that will motivate your teen child to change, and that is the title of the podcast. I'm Rick Thomas. You're listening to Your Daily Drive. Let's go. By the way, I didn't finish this, and so I think this is going to be a two- or three-part series, and so this is the first part, and I may end up putting it in some kind of a book because it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. All right, so if you want to read it, jump on the website. 10 Things That Will Motivate Your Teen Child to Change. This is a long article. It will be part of a series, and the reason why is because change is not going to happen in a 500-word article. You need something plenary, comprehensive, something that's thorough. And so we try, or I try, to write those types of articles. All of them are, most of them are 2,000 words, but again, this one got a little bit longer. But it's that important because this is one of the more common reasons that people come to our ministry. They have a wayward child and they are looking for help. And so listen well, and I trust that this will serve you well. A rebellious teenager is a complicated problem with many angles to it. And loving parents want to motivate. They want to motivate their child to change. But too often, they are not aware of all that is involved in helping him. And so in this podcast, I want to give you 10 practical things that any parent can implement to motivate their teenager to move from a selfish, rebellious person to a Christ follower. Now, I know that if they get to the point of Christ follower, it will be because of the grace of God. Only God can regenerate. But we do have a responsibility, and as parents, God wants us to go and make disciples within our family. Let me give you a typical scenario of how it works out. It is typical. This is common. Mabel calls you about her teenage son, Biffy. He's 16 years old and in rebellion. The current patterns of defiance were a whisper in years past, but they have now grown into full into a full-fledged storm that is consuming the entire family. Mabel is hurting, she is confused, she is desperate, and she is impatient. You understand all four of those things. She wants help. She wants help now. Her husband was not involved in the initial phone call. He also does not come to the initial counseling sessions. He's not as disinterested as he is preoccupied with other priorities. The story that I've just shared with you is fictional, though it is often the typical process when a family looks for help for a rebellious child. And that's why I wrote it this way, because it is a typical scenario. I'm not bashing on dads here. I'm really not. I'm a dad, so it's it's my people. It's who I am. But I am saying that this is very common. The wife 
calls. She picks up the phone. So in this podcast, I'm going to touch on 10 possible contributors that speak to the state of this family's life for your consideration. And as I go through this list, my appeal to you is, will you ask the Lord to give you the humility, one, to give you the self-awareness, two, to give you the insight and the teachability, three and four, to see in what ways these 10 things apply to you. Now, perhaps it would be useful to share these things with a close friend. And so scroll to the bottom of the article, hit the print button, print it off in a PDF, or just grab the URL from the browser, copy and paste, and send it to someone, and you all talk about it. And so here are 10 things that will motivate your teen child to change. I trust it will serve you. Number one, passive dads. I've already said it in the beginning, in the scenario that I scripted out. And so the mom, rather than the dad, initiates nearly all troubled teen counseling sessions. That's a statistical truth. In my counseling career, almost always is the mom. When a dad calls me, I'm like, praise God. I'm talking to the leader of the home. Now, I realize that many dads work during the day, and it is easier for mom to make the call. That's cool. That's okay. But it typically becomes apparent during the counseling season how the dad is more passive about the family than the mom. This reality also applies to their marriage If a dad is passive, he's not typically selective passive within the family unless he's just truly angry at someone and disses them regularly. But in many cases, if he's passive toward the children, then he's passive in the marriage too. And so this is part of their parenting model. A passive or angry dad, those are the two most significant factors in teen rebellion. And so point number one is passive dads. Now, under each one of these 10 sections, I have four questions for you. Sometimes they are couplet questions, but I have more than 40. I probably have between 50 and 60 questions in this article, and so it is a a hummer of a of a homework assignment. But I wrote it this way on purpose because the problems are that significant, and I, I want to I want to spur you on to love and good deeds, and I want to stir you up to think. And so, giving you some provocative, biblical, clear, direct questions will help you under each section. So we're talking about passive dads. Here's one of those questions, who is the leader of your home? How actively is the husband slash father providing oversight, care, and direction to the family? This is not a closed-ended question. It is a discussion question. Who is the leader of your home? How actively is the husband, father providing oversight, care, direction to the family? Question number two, What does biblical submission look like in your home? Talk about it. Describe it. Number three, if the mom is the de facto leader, de facto means that it's just happening, whether intended or not, this person is the leader. And if the mom is the de facto leader, does she lead with humility while honoring the dad? Now, that is a big deal. There are many moms who 
whether they want it or not, they are the de facto leader of the home. Okay, well, that's the way it is, and and that's okay in this context, but are you leading with humility or leading with an attitude? Are you honoring your husband and not with an attitude? Question four, regardless of who is leading, how does your parenting model impact your children positively and negatively? You're not doing it all wrong. I would not even begin to think that. That's not in my thought processes. And so what are some of the positive things that God is doing in your family? You want to talk about those because you don't want to be just discouraged all the time. Yeah, God's grace is evident in your home in what ways? And then, of course, you want to level up, and so you want to shore up what is uh, what is dipping, and, and so what are the negative aspects of your parenting model? And so number one, I'm addressing passive deaths. Number two, collaboration. Biblically speaking, it is a false continuum to believe the teenage years are years of rebellion. Being a teen equals rebellion. That is a false continuum. It's a myth. It happens sometimes, but it doesn't happen all the time. And I hope that you're not beholding to the false continuum that says, if you are a teen, you are in rebellion. Don't do that. That's like talking about the terrible twos. I don't like that term, and I don't like the idea of saying, and you hear people say this, they talk like this. It's so anti-grace and anti-hope. Oh, just wait till the teen years when they will be rebellion, re- rebelling. I mean, that speaks as much to the parents as it does to the child, as though the child is the only one who is messing up. Under point number two here, collaboration. If there is rebellion, it didn't begin at 13. When he became a teenager, the seeds of defiance are in the heart of a kid long before he becomes a teenager. And the collaborating factors of one, his indwelling sin, and two, the self-centeredness of the parents contribute, collaborate to what people understand as teen rebellion. To say that a teen is the only problem is an improper understanding of, one, the doctrine of sin, and two, the child's shaping influences. And so here's some of the questions. What are the shaping influences in your teenager's life? Start with the parents. The parents are a shaping influence. I asked earlier, what are the positive effects of your parenting model? Your parenting model is a shaping influence. But I also asked, what are some of the negative aspects of your parenting model? And so what are the shaping influences in the teenager's life? We're under point number two, collaboration. What about the friends? The child's friends are shaping influences, as well as media, activities, sports, or otherwise, culture, and academic relationships. Put the child in the center of a piece of paper and, 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 and write out, label all the way around him, 360 degrees, just different labels, different shaping influences. All of them have an impact in the child's life, and one of those would be the parent's. What are the top three positive shaping influences from the parents? There are some things that you're doing well. What are three of them? How are you shaping your how have you been shaping your child positively? And then what are two adverse parental shaping influences? Two 
just two. One from the dad, one from the mom. Do you want to help your child to change? The title of this podcast and the article I'm sharing with you, 10 Things That Will Motivate Your Child to Change. If you're serious about change, then you want to address you first. You can see where I'm going with this podcast. There are a couple more questions here, but I will skip them. You can read them if you wish. I'm going to go to point number three. Number one was passive dads. Number two was collaboration. Number three is humility. Because the last point about collaboration is so significant, you must give more consideration to your influence over your child. Almost always, the trouble with the troubled teen does not begin with the teenager. It is rare for kids to become messed up in 16 short years without help from the parents. Perhaps you were one of those children. I was, without question. I was in jail when I was 15 years old. It's on me. That's me. I messed up. I made a bad decision. I made a bunch of bad decisions. But let's be honest. Did I get there by myself? Were there no negative, adverse shaping influences in my life? Let's be honest. At some level and to some degree, nearly all parents have areas that need to change. That's why point number three here after collaboration is humility. Their humility, the parent's humility, is the key to change to the change process regarding their teenager. James 4, 6 teaches that God will give his empowering favor, talking about grace here, to those who are humble. Is there anything in your heart that hinders you from walking in humility as you come alongside your rebellious teenager? Number two, how strong is the temptation to vindicate yourself because of how hard you have tried to help him? I'm not saying your defense, the things that you say, how hard you tried to help him. I'm not saying any of those things on that list are untrue, but we're talking about humility here. A humble heart does not begin with a defensive posture. Question number three, what specific thing can you change about your parenting that will soften the tension in the home? We're talking about humility. Will you begin making those changes today? To whatever degree your improper parenting habits are, how much of it comes from the inadequate shaping influences from your parents? Let's go back up the chain. I think about my parents' shaping influences and how it had a distorting effect on me. As uh, When I walked into parenthood as a young man, I had no template. I had no proper template. I had a template for parenting, but it was a whacked-up template. And so, again, you want to be honest with how your parents shaped you. You don't have to curse them or be angry at them. I'm not angry at all at my parents. I'm not. I've worked through that, and I trust you have too. But what? how, how has the inadequate shaping influence from your parents? How have they shaped you? How have you reacted to your parents or overcompensated because of them in unbiblical ways? Some people model their parents. Some people react to their parents or overcompensate. We're talking about humility. Number four, the starting point. I've made a case for kid problems being a collaborative effort. Any reasonable and clear-thinking Christian will understand this reality, but it does elevate attention. It is difficult 
it is difficult. It is challenging to tell a mom who you do not know. Now, I'm the counselor, and the mom comes to me. Remember in the beginning, Mabel comes to me about Biffy, the 16-year-old. It is difficult to tell a mom who you do not know how part of the problem is with her and with her relationship with her husband and his relationship with her. And so you don't want to skirt around this issue, though you want to do it with the most utmost care and compassion. There is no place in counseling for harshness or unkindness, but you can't skirt around this issue. Point number four is the starting point. And so as if you can, now you can't do this with every parent or every mom that comes to you, not in the beginning, but you do want to get to that place. If the parents own their negative shaping influences that have affected the child, much good could come from the counseling if the parents will own it. And again, the first time you meet with the parent, when Mabel walks through the door, you probably won't be talking about the starting point, starting with the parents. How have you all parented uh, this child? What's going on with you, etc.? But this is one of the 10 points that you must address. I have questions here. I'm going to skip them for sake of time, but you can read them if you Wish. Number five, Dear Dad. That's the title of number five. Since the typical scenario that I outlined for you at the beginning of this podcast is the mother seeking help for the rebellious teenager, I do want to address the dad specifically here. Though I trust that the dad is reading through this article and he's already worked through the first four things. And the first four things, there's more than 16 questions there. And he's worked through and processed those questions with his wife. If there is a dad in the home, he must insert himself into the counseling process. In many cases, it is a poor relationship with the dad that is at the core of the teen's problems. It is almost always there to some degree. Dads of rebellious teens must understand how their roles as fathers have a lifetime impact on their sons and their daughters. Dad under this section, number five, I have two I have two articles linked there. I have more. There's one, two, three, four, five, six. I have six. But there are two that speak to your vital role that you have with and over your child. And my appeal to you is that you will read those articles. And then I have a video inserted at this section titled The Important Role of Fathers. It's about a 10-minute video on our YouTube channel. Will you watch it? Will you at least read these two articles under this section, number five, titled Dear Dad? And then number six, no enemies here. When the teen comes to counseling, he's typically thinking two things. It is three against one, Mom, dad, and this stranger who's going to fix me. And then number two in his mind, and because it is Christian counseling, the counselor is about to ram the Bible down my throat. I've seen this so many times with these rebellious punk teenagers. It's like looking in a mirror because when I see them, I see me. I mean, that is me. 
Of course, I never went to Christian counseling, but I sat there with my arms crossed and just in all of my defiance and heroism, and I've seen these teenagers come in, and they do think that. It's, it's three against one. It's them versus me, and so I'm going to be stronger and more defiant. And, well, this is a Christian counselor. My parents do the God thing, and so they got a Christian counselor, and he's going to ram the Bible down my throat. A wise counselor will understand a teen's potential presupposition, as I've just described to you, and that wise counselor will prepare accordingly. And the parents need to know this, too. So they can help deconstruct the child's resistance. You need to understand what's going on in the mind of the child. Some parents will even fall into this trap by thinking the counselor will fix their son. Not only is the teenager thinking this, he's going to ram the Bible down my throat and he's going to try to fix me, but the parents can think that too. And if the parents think the counselor can fix the child, you're going to meet with me six times, 12 times, and you've had this child for 16 years. I'm going to fix this child in six months. What's taking 16 years to get so messed up? What you'll end up doing is you'll just map added pressure on an already tense situation. Number six, no enemies here. Uh, That's really a note to the teenager. But the parents need to understand the concept here. And so here's a couple of questions for you. Are your expectations that counseling will work during the season that you have your child with the counselor? Are those your expectations? And my follow-up is, what is your biblical basis for that assumption? God grants repentance, not the counselor. And so he's not going to be dispensing repentance during this season. Do you have a biblical basis thinking that the counselor is going to fix the kid? Question two, when you read 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 about God granting repentance, how should you think about your child changing, assuming that he will? By the way, in most cases, the child never changes during counseling in this type of counseling during this short season, during a rebellious teenage a teenage life. They may change in the future. And the counselor has to understand that he's watering and planting, and the parent has to understand this as well. And so another question is, how are you guarding your mind against creating an artificial timeline for your child to change? And maybe a good follow-up would be something like this. Does he feel any pressure from you to change today? In what ways are you releasing the counselor from changing your child? Your answer to these questions that I've been asking under this section, they will reveal your they will reveal a heart of fear or worry or anger or faith. And so as you work through these questions, what does it reveal? Fear, worry, anger, or faith. And that will also reveal about reveal a lot about you and your relationship with God. The title of the podcast, 10 Things That Will Motivate Your Child to Change. Number one, passive dads. You need to address it if it's real. Number two, collaboration. Parents, you helped. You helped to get him here. Number three, humility. Are you teachable? Number four, starting point. Got to start with yourself, parents. Number five, dear dad, let's focus on ourselves for a little bit. Number six, there are no enemies here, just just helpers. Are, are we pacing ourselves and understand that God grants repentance? Number seven, future grace. Unfortunately, by the time the parent calls, 
The heart attitude of the child has been in place for years, as I have been saying. The accumulative disappointment in the child makes immediate change nearly impossible. And though many of these teens do transform, it usually happens years later. Repentance is not a capsule you dispense. It is a process that can take decades depending on the intertwining of toxic relationships within the family dynamic, the depth of the disappointment and the anger and the arrogance of the victim child that needs to change. And so some questions under number seven, future grace. Parents, how long did it take you to work out all your problems to where you have a peace that passes understanding? If it went beyond your teen years like me, it took me a long time to get my act together. Are you appropriating that kind of grace to your child? Are you the parent who learned how to trust God in all things in 30 years And now you're expecting your child to come to that place in six months or less during counseling. Don't be that parent. Number three, in what ways is God's favor controlling your mind now to where you're not worrying over your child's decisions? I'm talking about a type of worry that is disrupting your peace or tempting you to respond in anger. Question number four, are you predicting future trouble for your child? You're going out to the future, and there's going to be trouble, and you're bringing it back in today's setting. Per what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 34, you remember, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. And so number seven is future grace. Number eight is impatience. It does need its own category because we can be that way. This idea of change taking years to happen can be a sore spot for a parent. The place where you will see it is through their impatience. They want transformation today. In the scenario that I read earlier, you heard how I I said that Mabel wants Biffy to change now. That was a complete sentence in that scripted scenario. Oftentimes, this kind of attitude is motivated by fears. Perhaps the parents have unrealistic goals and expectations for their child, for the counselor, for the Lord, and for their spouse. There's four people that this parent has unrealistic expectations. There are several personalities here, the child, the counselor, the Lord, the spouse, and only one of them is perfect. And so impatience, I have a set of questions for you here. I will skip them for the sake of time. Move down to number nine, community. Rarely is the local church and family engaging each other to the degree that matters in situations like this. Typically, there is a communal disconnect with the church and these parents, which could be why they're reaching out to someone who is not a part of their church family. But it's also common for churches not to be able to counsel at this level with this kind of competency. Think about it this way. There are thousands of more churches than there are competent counselors. I mean, with a large certifying counseling organization, you may have 1,000 or or 1,500 certified counselors. There's probably a million churches in the world. I don't know. But there are way more churches in the world than there are competent counselors. And I don't think some people do the math when they fuss at their churches for not having a a competent counselor 
on staff, on board, in that church, somehow, some way. To expect every church in the world to have a well-trained biblical counselor is unrealistic at best, and it could be uncharitable expectations at worst. Even so, you must start building a community if you don't have one at this point. And I have some questions here along those lines. And then finally, number 10, hope. A child's rebellion is a lot of bad news initially. The caring parent always asks, is there a hope for my kid? I've heard that so many times. And what recommended resources do you have? And that's a problematic one. I, I, there's so much to say right there, like give me a book, you know, give me a resource, as though that's what they need. That that's such that's what they need. It, it, it's a plank. It's a splinter on a it's a uh, splinter on a platform of what they need. That's why I have so many questions here. That's why I have over 20 articles embedded here. That's why I have a video here. You need more than a resource. You you need a community. You need a bunch of resources. God does have an answer for the parent and the teen. Life does not have to be the way it has been. God can reorient any parent's or child's thinking and behavior, but it will not be as simple as sending him to counseling. A season with a competent caregiver could prove to be a great supplement. But no matter how long that time is, it will end. And while there is hope in God's grace, humanly speaking, there is almost always a lot that the parent can do too. And that in itself should should give you hope. Ten things that will motivate your teen child to change. Passive dads, collaboration, humility, starting point. Number five, dear dad. Number six, no enemies here. Number seven, future grace. Eight, impatience. Nine, community. And 10, hope. A lot of questions between 50 and 60 of them. A video, a lot of articles, well, more than 20 of those. You're welcome to use all those resources and you can talk to us. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.